Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Okay, so it really is a thrill to be able to introduce the Stem Cells in Space panel. And, you know, you heard the discussion about how we try and make new therapies and how you have to be a trailblazer, whether you're a patient or a scientist. Um, but I think when you look at the doers, the people who actually make space relevant and, um, you know, tell us why it matters, but also how we can use it. Uh, so I just wanted to go through the panel and maybe um, just introduce yourselves in order, just because Mark's sitting closest to me, if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Mark Gilinati and proud alumni of UCSD. Um, I'm currently working with Sierra Space. Uh, we're building the platforms um, that will enable researchers um, and astronauts uh, to go and um, perform the, the, the biomedical research that we think um, might lead to some breakthroughs in this area. So we have some unique um, technologies that I hope to talk about that will enable um, enable this research as well as our, our dream chaser space plane that um, is hopefully going to land here um, pretty soon in, in, the, in the near future. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Michael Roberts. I'm the, the chief scientist at the International Space Station National Laboratory. Um, I heard a phrase in the, the Alpha STEM panel that I think best describes what my job is, and our job is at ISS National Lab, and that's Bridging to the next thing. So uh, on the panel, you've been introduced to Mark, and you'll hear from others who are building the next generation space stations uh, on, in low Earth orbit to support research and technology development activities. The purpose of the International Space Station National Lab is to enable access to the International Space Station now so that you can begin to learn more about the advantages of uh, operating in that unique environment and how they actually can accelerate uh, translation to the clinic and have important outcomes there. Hi, everybody. I'm Arun Sharma. I'm assistant professor at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center just up the road. Um, I'm a cardiovascular biologist, stem cell biologist. For most of what my lab does is modeling cardiovascular disease in vitro, looking at cardio-oncology, the intersection of cancer and heart disease. Um, but I've also had the opportunity for the last 10 years or so to conduct multiple experiments aboard the International Space Station, uh, starting with a, an experiment that I did in grad school when I was at Stanford. Uh, I sent a sample of IPS-derived cardiomyocytes to the ISS for a period of one month to examine the effect of microgravity on cellular function, contractility, gene expression. That was one of the first uh, long-term stem cell culture experiments ab done aboard the International Space Station. And now that I have my own laboratory at Cedars-Sinai, I'm also exploring with uh, Clive Svensson um, some applications for biomanufacturing in space, how we may be able to harness low gravity, microgravity to produce biomedical products or biological products in ways that are simply impossible on the ground. So that's something that I'm pretty excited about. Hi, I'm Jana Studemeyer, um, Director of In-Space Manufacturing for Axiom Space. We are building the world's first commercial space station with a first module that will attach to the International Space Station in 2026. And the idea is that as we build the commercial space station, we'll actually 
have an opportunity to kind of bridge as the International Space Station that exists today is decommissioned at the end of the decade. So um, I've had the pleasure of working with many of you, and it's certainly great to be here today to have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about why doing research in microgravity is something that I think really can help to accelerate the field of regenerative medicine and stem cells. Hi, uh, my name is Alain Berenstain. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Space Tango. Uh, we're focused on using the unique environment of space to help, uh, to help us here on Earth. And we have the pleasure and privilege of working with Dr. Jameson, Dr. Motri, and their amazing teams here. We've become good friends over, over time to help them do their experiments and, and their groundbreaking uh, uh, discoveries in space by helping build the tools in which they do their their amazing uh, research and science. And we're focused on, on helping other people and also developing some new techniques for manufacturing new materials, different materials in space that will help us here on the ground. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Engelbert, and I work for NASA. And i um, fortunate to be able to work with all these really intelligent people to uh, manage um, what I think is the beginning of a new economy of uh, permanent use of space for production of advanced materials and novel therapeutics, um, taking advantage of microgravity to, to uh, go beyond the barriers that we see for some of those terrible diseases that everybody's studying today. You know, the, the investment that I'm making on behalf of the government and behalf of all the taxpayers, I think, is going to lead to, uh, you know, all new um, advancements in, in disease modeling and uh, drug development, as well as new materials in other areas like semiconductors. So I'm really fortunate to be able to be in this role and try and use Space Station and, and together and with the ISIS National Lab, do things for all of us down here on Earth. Great, thanks so much. So I just wanted to go through a couple of slides to sort of put this in a stem cell context. Well, we first started doing this work with Janice Studemeyer, who's there in the middle of the panel. She said, Kat, space is just different. I said, well, how does that help? I don't actually know what that means. She said, you'll get different answers than you ever expected. And I would say that space is uniquely accelerating and uniquely enabling and, you know, conforms with a sense of urgency that we heard from, from at the beginning of the day from Noah. You know, thinking about when time lets slip a little perfect hour, oh, take it, for it will not come again. So that's from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. My mom used to read this uh, to us when we were little. And I thought, that sounds kind of depressing. Do we really have to think about this? But it's really about all of us. It's about our longevity. And how do we study aging in a healthy way? I think Ron may start to solve this issue. Thank you. Please work on the telomerase activators more. Uh, but... You know, how do we study this in a personalized context, as you heard from Sandra on the last panel? And, you know, how do we put this in the context of hematopoietic stem cells, as Sid Jayswell talked about? So I think what we've been able to do in space with Space Tango, with the in-space manufacturing grant, thank you, Kevin, uh, and with our collaborators here, uh, we've been able to dissect different components of blood stem cell aging, and as you heard from Alison Motri, neural stem cell aging, and then we're going to tackle liver progenitor aging. So we can look at all these tissues and look at the 
the effects of stress on what happens. It isn't just inexorable development of mutations. It's actually stress can accelerate all of this. And what kind of stress accelerates the mutagenic process? Uh, this is from the New England Journal paper that Irv Weissman and I just published. And what Irv always says is in vivo veritas. You probably saw that on the slides. But in human veritas, we have to really study human biology. And that's what space has allowed us to do because of the very brave people that not only do experiments up there for us, but actually allow themselves to be part of the experiment. And this is what happened with the NASA twin study. So we know in the 340 days that Scott Kelly spent in space compared to his identical twin brother, he came back two inches taller, so that seemed pretty good. But he had immune dysfunction, pre-malignant changes in the blood, and increased inflammatory growth factor expression. And so using that multi-omics panel, uh, it became very clear that he had the inflammatory growth factors that we know activate these stress enzymes, APOBEC and ADAR. So APOBEC3s, primate-specific, uh, you can't study them in a mouse, ADARs also work 90% of the time within these sequences called ALUs that are also primate-specific. So we were really excited to get this grant from NASA. Thank you again, Kevin. Uh, so the Washington Post was interested to see that we started the first integrated space stem cell orbital research lab. Uh, Sheldon Morris, Alison Motri, Eric Viri, uh, David Brenner, Tatiana Kisileva, all of us working on different types of stem cells in space. But what space made us do is develop new technologies that work in space, but they work just as well on the ground. So by automating how you study stem cells, we found hey, wait a minute, we can make better technologies to look at stem cell longevity. We created a nanobioreactor. This is Jessica Pham, uh, Jane Isquith, others in the lab that helped to put to the test a cell cycle reporter that we made with Roger Chan, who got the Nobel Prize for GFP, but he said, Kat, I'm not done. I think you need to look at how stem cells age and how they age in a pre-malignant versus malignant context. So this is uh, Space Tango's Cube Lab. I'm trying to do a shout out to the people you see on the panel here because they've all been involved in the development of this technology. This helps us to screen drugs on the ground, uh, but by taking this unique step to do four hematopoietic stem cell experiments in space and then uh, two cancer cell experiments in space that we call Cancer and Leo with Axiom Space and Peggy Whitson. And then uh, the board's missions, we've got two for neural stem cells and then two more. And we heard from uh, Arun, he's been involved in the cardiomyocyte development field. And then with Clive in the IPS uh, derivation, we know Gene has been doing experiments as well. So this field is growing. So how do we get the appropriate rigor, reproducibility, and reliability of data that we need for science to be translated to the clinic? And how do we do this in real time so we can get answers? So if we put full-blown leukemia into our bioreactors with a green fluorescent protein tagged ADAR or tumor organoids with a cell cycle reporter, we're able to see tripling in size of the tumor organoids and that they activate this cloning gene called ADAR. And so, you know, we don't want to be Debbie Downer. Uh, we thought we may want to do something about ADAR activation, which is a, a gene that allows cancer cells to clone themselves and evade the immune system. So we are developing a drug called Rebexinib to do that with CIRM help. And uh, Jessica, being part of every single experiment, needed a partner, uh, and then we triangulated on this. Uh, there's Jessica Pham setting up the experiment to go into space. 
Peggy Woodson here in the front row, uh, was able to put the experiment, experiments plural, on the Kians microscope. So I would say there's nothing that supplants natural intelligence, NI, and ingenuity. And this is a testament to that. Um, and what Peggy gave us was this amazing insight into biology, but it happened much faster. So if you think about how a cancer decides to blast off, this takes time on Earth. But in space, we were able to abbreviate that timeline. And here's day four of imaging with triple negative breast cancer organoids that actually have that ADAR reporter. You see after we give fedratinib, which is a weaker ADAR inhibitor, it starts to dial down. And there's the image Peggy got us in the last two minutes. In fact, it was two minutes we didn't even have. Thank you, Peggy. Uh, it was my birthday. It was 4.45 AM. And then everybody sang happy birthday with the Lidos team. This was the best birthday present ever because this pushed us to really try and make this drug to prevent cancer from cloning itself. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is that we've got heroes among us. We've got astronauts who will be scientists in space, and then scientists on the ground who will partner to understand how do stem cells age under conditions of stress. And this is something that we need to build into our modeling, whether it's a PACER model or another model of how cancer evolves. It, it often doesn't just inexorably increase, it blasts off. And so um, we'll be studying this with Peggy, John Schaffner, Ali, and Rihanna to see um, what the stress of the mission did in terms of uh, stem cells in the blood. And then hopefully predict, prevent, and reverse accelerated stem cell aging, not just in the blood, but also in the liver and in the neural system, uh, and also reverse malignant aging if we can. So no pressure. I mean, we, we've got lofty goals here. Um, but I just wanted to set the stage for the discussion so you'll understand why the people in front of you are such trailblazers. They're taking the toughest environment and saying, aha, but we can find new solutions to difficult problems on the ground. So I'll start with Mark. Uh, Mark's an alumnus of UCSD, so I've got to give him the toughest questions. Uh, so Mark is a chemist, biochemist, uh, used to developing drugs. Um, so I've got two questions for you. One is, what is the advantage, or what do you see as the potential advantage to developing new small molecule or other therapeutics in a microgravity or space environment? Yeah. So I, I think when I think about um, a microgravity environment, I always think about it as a variable that if I had the opportunity to go across the hallway in my research facility, that I would take advantage of it. It's something that um, can enable us to unlock pathways. I think that's one of the first things that we're going to start to really discover. And I think Arun, in, in the work that you're starting to do and in, in, in the work that you've shown, Kat, is, is that um, we're going to initially understand pathways that are manipulated differently by um, exploiting this variable and understanding how we can then take that and translate that um, to work here on the on the ground. And the tricky part and why I'm excited to be at Sierra Space is it's not as easy as walking across the lab. But I, I think that the encouraging thing is, is that we've got a lot of commercial companies that are building space stations now. We've learned from all the work on ISS and the goal that we have at Sierra Space is to do these in cost-effective ways. So we're developing technologies that enable us to get large volumes with um, lower um, launch costs and have um, the vehicles to get um, up and back. So to me, um, the real advantage is, is that when it becomes a variable that we can really exploit and manipulate. 
Um, it's a unique variable that we just can't independently control um, here on Earth. And I, I really, truly believe that it can unlock um, different pathways that can lead to um, improvements of therapeutics. Now, you, just one more question. You have the dream chaser that's under development called Tenacity, which seems appropriate for this audience, yep. Talent Tenacity Teamwork. Can you tell us a little bit about when that will launch and when it will land and why it's an advantage? Yeah, so our tenacity is our, um, it's a return to shuttle capability. So currently, right now, when you are either going up as a human or as um, a stem cell experiment, you're launched up in a capsule and returns under parachute and landed in either the desert or out in the ocean. Um, you know, there's obviously there are some potential um, disadvantages if we're going to um, get to the point where we're doing even psych, uh, um, GMP type um, work where we want to have access to our payloads and have to convince the FDA that this is a, is a, a method that we can um, we can standardize and control. Um, and in this case, with the Dream Chaser, we can land on a runway that can um, handle a 737. So you can imagine having. Um, the vehicle return at a site of either a, ma a manufacturing or a clinical site, um, and that can enable quick access not only to the astronauts but also to the payloads that that currently is is not accessible. And it has a very low um, G reentry, so about 1.5 G on the reentry. And so we're expecting uh, the beginning of next year. So it's going to be an exciting time to return to um, the, this capability. Great. We'll hear more about it when you come back next year for this panel, yeah. Mark. Uh, Mike, so you've been um, igniting innovation at the International Space Station through the Center for Advancement of Science and Space. What has been the biggest advance in terms of an innovative technology or discovery that you couldn't possibly have expected on Earth or would maybe never have seen on Earth? Can you think of a few things? Uh, I thought Mark was going to get the tough questions. Um, yes. So um, not to deviate from my answer, but I will a little bit. Uh, the most amazing discovery I think that I've made uh, and that we've made at ISS National Lab is the engagement with the new communities um, out there. Uh, our mission um, at the ISS National Lab was to expand and, and begin to democratize access to low Earth orbit for research and technology development that had specific benefit to Earth. So this was building upon a, a legacy of research uh, funded by NASA and other agencies uh, in the past, both U.S. and international, that uh, looked at space as a, a very um, dynamic environment in which to better understand how to further human exploration goals going farther and deeper into space. What we learned over the, the initial uh, few years of operation of, of the International Space Station was that there were not only dual-use technologies that came from going to that environment, but there were actual direct benefits to our understanding of disease onset and progression here on Earth. So uh, Kat mentioned um, the effects and the outcome from the twin study, right? So you have to understand that these are humans who go to space and are exposed to an extreme environment, even though they're, they're in the controlled environment inside the space station. But they begin to manifest symptoms that mimic those that follow the natural aging process here on Earth, or in some cases mimic the onset and progression of multiple diseases. The unique thing is that uh, for, the most case, for most cases, they reset back to their normal baseline upon return to Earth. The timelines are different, depending on the, the phenotype that you're looking at. But 
we've learned over time to exploit those and begin to develop model systems that can enable us to uh, generate even more data more quickly. So the engagement with the research communities that are funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, we've had a partnership at ISS National Lab with a program at National Science Foundation, which has focused on fundamental aspects of uh, thermal flow in the environment, also has an aspect of looking at tissue engineering and mechanobiology. So NSF, National Science Foundation, is funding fundamental research to understand how biology behaves in microphysiological systems. We also had a partnership with the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, NCATS, at NIH, which uh, funded, continued to fund foundational research related to tissue chips. They built, uh, in partnership with us, the Tissue Chips and Space Program. And again, this gets back to what Kate, uh, Kat was pointing out about the accelerated use of these devices in the microgravity environment. By putting uh, particular organ systems on a chip, you can follow their progression towards the phenotype of disease much more quickly than you can in any environment that we can recreate here on Earth. So those types of uh, partnerships with other government agencies and engaging with a community of researchers who've depended upon them have led to, to multiple important discoveries that have opened up opportunities not only for fundamental science, discovery-driven, hypothesis-driven research, but has led to new programs such as in-space production applications, in-space manufacturing that uh, Kevin introduced. So we're actually starting to look at ways to utilize microgravity as an environment in which to manufacture biological products that have superior performance. And they will have, in some cases, we believe, the increased efficiency of use, more safety, more efficacy, more desired effect, in order to close the business case of where the companies have to pay for the full cost of getting to space and bringing it back. And all that has been enabled by the investment in the International Space Station by NASA and by the international partners. So we are at this point in time beginning to transition to new platforms that, uh, that Mark spoke to that are going to accelerate and ignite innovation to go even farther, faster, and higher. And all of that is leading towards, again, this democratization of space. So in addition to the great work that uh, Dr. Whitson was able to do in space, some of the scientists in this room may be able to go to space with their experiments someday in the future. So we're seeing at this point uh, in our time the inflection point that the venture capital community likes to see where discovery is being enabled at such a pace that we believe the private sector is going to continue to only grow in its interest and help uh, alleviate some of the burden that's placed on our taxpayer dollars from the government agency. So it's a very important time, uh, both from a a medical outcome perspective and us understanding more about what we can learn from the unique environment of space. And from a value creation standpoint, we have this uh, great opportunity over the next uh, seven plus years of International Space Station operating in orbit to continue to build upon its legacy and help these new commercial platforms that will be operating in, in low Earth orbit really, uh, really get off the pad hot and keep going. Thank you. You answered all the questions I was going to ask. <laughs> there you go. We work together a lot. Uh, Arun, so you've done some pretty transformative experiments. You've worked on myocardial systems, induced pluripotent stem cell systems in space, uh, going back a decade with Joseph Wu and more recently with Clive and with Jana and the team. 
What has been your experience in terms of recapitulating three-dimensional tissue structure? Is it better in space? Is there, you know, we keep talking about the weaknesses of working in space and how hard it is, but is it actually better in some ways? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that's the thing I'm the most excited to investigate right now, which is, like I mentioned, we're working on a biomanufacturing and space project funded by NASA, uh, Clive Spencer being the co-PI for this. Uh, you know, it's it's something that we have observed as recently as our um, the experiment that we conducted on Axiom 2 with with Peggy. We are able to observe the, the formation of spheroids in a, in a format and in a rapidity that was actually... In my, in very quick, uh, it was uh, within just a, a few hours we were able to see the formation of these really nice spheroids um, with IPSCs and also IPSC-derived fibroblasts. And I think that, in my mind, it could serve as perhaps like a natural suspension bioreactor in contrast to some of the bioreactors that we have here on the ground that induce shear stress and introduce other biomechanical forces that may not be you know, great for stem cell function. Um, in contrast, if we just seed the cells in microgravity, they can just naturally aggregate. And it's not just something that we've observed. It's something that you know, Gene has also seen. Uh, other folks who are doing these three-dimensional organoid cultures and spheroid cultures have, have shown that there's a really an advantage to growing these 3D tissues in a microgravity context. So that's the area of study that I'm the most excited about, but I'm a stem cell biologist, so I have my biases, I guess. So we're having a bit of a debate about that yesterday. Is there accelerated aging or is it just a timing issue uh, where we have these shorter term missions where they're 10 days versus 30 days? You know, if is there a sweet spot there where you get stem cells to expand and uh, maybe direct differentiation down a certain lineage and then you've got stem cell exhaustion if you keep them up too long? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think it, it depends on the model system. It depends on what you're looking for. I mean, folks are looking at, say, maturation in microgravity versus enhanced proliferation. I mean, these are two you know, opposite phenotypes in some ways, right? So, you know, if you're looking at, for example, the experiment that I did a few years ago, uh, we were looking at, um, you know, the effect of microgravity on cardiomyocyte function. I mean, we know at the organ level, there's a change in cardiac function, cardiac physiology, but could we re- recapitulate some of that at the cellular level? And for that, we actually did a full 30-day mission to examine some of those changes that were happening. But some of those changes in gene expression actually happened within days. So perhaps we did need to do that full 30-day mission, uh, you know. Um, and some of these phenotypes, like I mentioned, even with the organoid formation, the spheroid formation, they're very rapid. Um, so I think it really depends on the, the context of the disease of the tissue that you're looking at. Okay, and then uh, over to Jana. Back to timing. Uh, Jana is always the one with the most impeccable timing. Uh, back to the thought that how do we get these iterative missions that, you know, maybe for certain purposes we want a really short-term mission. And for other things, we want to leave the cells up there for months. You know, how do we coordinate those things? You've been in biotechnology. You're on the, um, you know, the National Academies deciding how we do these things with the NASA Decadal Survey. It will tell us what we'll do over the next 10 years. How are we going to de-risk this in a way that biotech would say, okay, we want to work with you. Well, and first I have to say that, you know, 
I think when you think about taking gravity out of an equation, it's really hard to do because it's in everything that we do here on Earth. But when you can imagine the possibility of what that looks like, I think that's what Arun is saying. The science and the way that you see pathways, cells, the way they signal, the shape of cells, it's, it's completely different. And I think the most rewarding part for me has been not only the results, but watching sort of the change in the perspective and how you ask questions of your research. Because it's really, I think, once you've seen biology from a different lens, it's hard to unsee that. And so I guess I would say that, you know, the other thing that has struck me in the last day and a half listening to these sessions, this field is really at an inflection point where you can start to see that it's becoming translational towards patients. Space is very much the same way. We're at that inflection point where we have new capabilities coming on board, vehicles that you're hearing about like Dream Chaser, space stations that are commercial space stations, even the opportunity to be thinking beyond what we know and have learned. You know, we kind of call this the decade of results because we learned so much on the ISS in the last 20 years while people have been up there living and working in space. But in this next decade, we can even think about how we can transition to manufacturing. And when Mark talked about GMP facilities, you know, the ISS is a fantastic place, but it's not very clean from a manufacturing perspective. And it's also kind of small and limited in space. And to think that we'll have the ability to have a full module that will be dedicated to things like GMP manufacturing is just a very exciting time. And I think the cadence is picking up so much in space right now. The, we went to the AX2 launch and there's outside of Kennedy Space Center a little you know plaque that says how many launches we've had. And when we showed up, it was 23. And four days later, when we left, it was 26. And even for me, that's fast. I mean, I've been in the space industry for about 10 years. And we used to be really excited when every maybe 12 weeks we'd be launching a rocket, and now SpaceX is on its 73rd launch this year. So as that picks up, and as to cat to your point, you know, when we talk about building a commercial space economy, I love all the researchers who are willing to wait for five years for their results and you know understand if things continue to just get delayed and delayed that doesn't work on the commercial side. When you're building a commercial market and even the pace of biotech community, it's very quick and the science has to be very good. And I think where we've been very fortunate, you know, it takes some vision to work in microgravity, but everybody who's here is one of the visionaries in the stem cell field. And so I think that together with the pace of the research that's happening here on the ground and the capabilities that are being developed in space, we really have an opportunity for breakthroughs for patients, which is the point of everything that we're doing. So speaking of breakthroughs for patients, Jana, uh, the intellectual property aspects of what you do, considering you're going to be on the first commercial station, Axiom station, uh, seem pretty unique and interesting. How do you think that will be regulated? Yes. Will there be space law for commercial uh, opportunities? Well, it's funny that you ask because there's a patent that just issued on API in space, so making API in space. And it's, you know, opened a whole series of questions about, well, if you launched from somewhere and what platform are you on, like where are you infringing on that patent? And so I think, but the general rule of thumb is that whatever country that you're from, 
that's where the patent would be issued from. So it doesn't really matter what platform you're working on as much as the practice of that patent, then it depends if it's a U.S. patent or a European patent. But the idea that we're even talking about IP for space is so exciting because it's the truth. And the reason that in-space manufacturing is something that we're considering for the commercial space economy it can't be, it's almost like a clinical trial. You can't have an incremental difference. To make the business case really close, it has to be something you can't do here on Earth. And those are the kinds of things that we're looking right now with visionary leaders in science to try to define because we know that's not only tremendously beneficial to building a commercial space economy, but the benefit to patients is something that I don't even think we can imagine yet. So on that note, Alain, you've been involved in developing new technologies that will work in the space environment and developed AI algorithms with your team at Space Tango to help to track how stem cells behave. How do you see that having benefit on the ground? Obviously, you know, you've done this for space, but what other opportunities do you see there? Sure, thank you. Um, so because of the necessity of doing the work in space a little bit differently, we don't always have crew that's available. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And when we don't, we need to build machines that will be able to carry out the science that needs to be carried out. Um, and there are pros and cons to, to using crew, using machines, or using both. Having humans in the loop or not, whether the humans are in space or the humans are on the ground, they're all different. It's, just, it's no different from doing laboratory work on, on the ground, we use all our expertise to be able to reach the goals that we need to reach. However, when you try to, we've all been in labs where you walk into the lab and somebody is the specialist for growing that type of cell, right? They have the right mojo about them, they, <laughs> they wave over the cells, they talk to them just right, and they're the only person in the lab who can grow those cells, right? Those are the, the kinds of cells that are hard to grow on the ground, but somehow we figured out how to grow them in a lab 300 miles up in the air in a sealed box and be able to keep them alive and actually have them do well. And that's not, that's not so easy to do, but what we're able to do is take that variability of the human in the loop out, and that helps us develop some systems where reliability, throughput, and, and volume is something that's a little bit easier uh, to, to reach. And so we've, we've seen these, these, these advantages. And as we get into manufacturing, when you have to do things over and over and over, lots and lots of times, just like on the ground, you automate stuff. And you're going to have to do the same in space. Now, that, there's automation. And then there's also being able to, uh, to, to execute experiments on ISS from the ground in a more remote control environment. We have, to, to be able to do CATS experiments, uh, we have to be able to look for uh, cells that are fluorescing through a microscope that we control from, from Kentucky in our operations room. And our electrical engineers have become world-class microscopists and they don't even know that they are <laughs> because they figured out how to track these things, how to find them again. And they said, oh, I could do this quicker. I'm going to write a little code. And oh, tomorrow I'm going to tell the microscope to just go find that cell that went out of the field of view yesterday and find it again. And he finds it. And he's developed these AI-type tools to be able to monitor what's going on and do it in a higher throughput kind of a way. Now, that's not necessarily automated. It is automated when you find it. But that human operating that microscope is just as much in the loop as Dr. Whitson was when she was doing her, her uh, microscopy 
using a different microscope system on orbit. So these are all really cool, interesting technologies. And now Dr. Jameson has, uh, we're having conversations saying, well, you know, when I need to, to make the measurements on those fluorescing cells in that nanobioreactor, my, my team needs to go into the incubator, take out the bag, put it up on the microscope stage, figure out and find that cell, take it out, put it back. In that time, temperature has changed, the atmosphere has changed, and it disrupts the, the cell environment. We've developed tools where none of that has to happen. It all just happens within the same sealed box. And now we're having conversations about, well, wouldn't it be nice to have one of these machines on the ground doing that kind of work so that we can do that in a more reproducible way? So there's, there's benefits going in both directions. There's some really cool new science that's been able to do. And we have people who are, who are really helping move forward the technology in fields that they weren't even, they're not even researchers in that field. So that's the strength of these teams, these multidisciplinary teams that we get to work on. And everybody brings the, 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 their strength to the team. And where we're going with this, with these kinds of machines, when, when we're working with our friends here who are putting up space stations, is right now when Dr. Jameson uh, sends up her, her experiment in one of our boxes, we take the whole box, we send it up, the whole box comes back down. In the future, we'll have more machines that are on orbit and stay on orbit to the extent where maybe all we will need to send is frozen cells and they'll go up and we'll have media on board, we'll be able to recycle media, we'll be able to, uh, to, to sterilize the environment and do all the analysis on board as well so that all we send back is the information. And so the throughput again goes up, the cadence of the flights goes up, but the magic here is that we'll be able to do multiple iterations between launches. And our friends at NASA are working on, on that kind of a, of, a, of a concept where the whole prepare, test, analyze cycle happens between launches. And the pace of innovation, the pace of research, and the pace of, 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 of discoveries will increase tenfold, a hundredfold when we're able to get to that stage. And because of the advent of commercial stations, the advent, the advent of private capital, new discoveries of the kinds of things we can do in space and actually have commercial benefits from it, the conditions are finally there for this kind of thing to happen. It's super exciting. So I think Alain's being a little self-deprecating there. So this platform technology that was developed for space has even more value on the ground, I would say, for understanding how we drug screen for toxicity towards normal stem cells, liver progenitors, neural stem cells with Allison. Um, you know, these are things that Roche at Genentech may want to hear a little bit more about. We could look at a telomerase activating compound in these three-dimensional systems. Just saying, Ron. Uh, you know, this we live in the land of biotech. We have 683 biotech companies surrounding us. We started the Astrobiotechnology Hub in March because we've got a depth in aerospace research here and uh, again just a, a kind of can-do mentality as well as biotech uh, which brings us to Kevin so you're going to be running this whole in-space manufacturing empire what are the advantages of manufacturing in space how does that help us on earth is this another deep space discovery mission where we're all going to feel smarter but maybe not healthier what's going to happen with the InSpot program well if it becomes an empire i'm sure they'll find someone smarter to run it <laughs> i don't think so um so um i guess in my view I, I i think we've seen enough evidence from research that's been done in the last decade and a half 
since we've finished ISS assembly and going back to, to research on shuttle before that and all the way even to Skylab that it gives me a lot of hope that we're, we're going to find ways through some of these really excellent um, projects that we've already funded and more that we intend to fund. We're going to find ways to use microgravity to our benefit. And it's, it is really hard for our first-time flyers. They get up there and, and they're hoping to see what they thought they would see. And, and sometimes they do, and other times, almost every time, they see something really weird they weren't expecting. So it's a long, long road for them. Um, and... The, the really cool thing is that NASA has gotten into this mode of wanting to help enable this new economy, and we're committed to providing enough opportunities um, to get all the way through that valley of death and master that microgravity manufacturing process or production process. Um, and so I think we're going to see uh, in the future um, many, many um, universities and companies follow the examples of the ones we're working with now where everybody's got you know a part of their portfolio uh, looking at what goes to space you know it's a new environment for them the first time but once they understand it it should become kind of normalized that you know we've got labs here we've got labs there but there's a lab or two or three eventually a lot more up there and you can't operate a business today um, without really smart people doing software and things like that. And in the future, you won't be able to operate a business if you don't have a wing of your company that knows how to do certain things in, in that new environment up above. So, you know, I, I'm really optimistic that it's going gonna, it's gonna to touch everybody down here. Personalized medicine in the future, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful, is going to include, you know, everybody's cells going to space at some point for, for screening. You know, instead of sending them to a lab down the road, you're going to see, especially if you have a family history of a disease. Mm. Um, I think what, what Kat's team is doing with pre-cancer stem cell work in space is going to become, you know, one of, the, one of the standard ways in the FDA process in decades to come. I don't know how long before we get there, but I think it'll be in my lifetime. Yeah, I, well, it, it should be very soon, actually. Um, but with, you know, you can see we're all friends here. We have these discussions all the time. And it's, it's just fun. Yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. You have the most hopeful people, but also the most accomplished people that really, you know, when we went to visit Kevin at uh, Johnson Space Center, uh, you always think of Houston, we have a problem. Kevin always has a solution. Always. <laughs> Even if it's just driving us to the airport. You really went out of your way. Thank you. Uh, so I think what I was wondering about, you see Big Pharma using space already, Kevin. You had BMS and Merck working together. So you get these unusual alliances for protein crystallography, as we saw with Kay Truda binding to PD-1. Do you see more of these unique partnerships starting, you know, industry academia partnerships, hopefully CIRM? California Institute for Regenerative Medicine or patient groups really being involved in this to be able to guide the process as trailblazers in drug development and discovery? Well, what I've seen just the last two days shows me that the, the, the ideas start in the universities, right? And, mm -hmm. and, um, but as we mature this over the next decade, businesses, including Big Pharma, are going to see that there's, there's something there that they can't avoid and ignore. So... Uh, I'm seeing the beginning of ecosystems, both here on the East Coast. I think in the semiconductor world, you're going to see similar ecosystems 
coming out because of the CHIPS Act. And my goal is to convince you know as many people as I can in other government agencies uh, at the state level to to include uh, an in-space component to everything they do because there's something about it that's going to allow them to do something far better than than they can on earth so yeah. may i can yeah. add to that is yes. is it to me it's the most fun part of my job is talking to somebody who makes something anything it doesn't matter what here we're talking about cells but now we've got a bunch of people here in in the audience who may not have thought about the role of gravity in what they do and just having more people think about that and saying i wonder what gravity is doing to what i do is just an amazing experience for us as people. But then as we think of the use of space, going to a different kind of manufacturing processes where people have to wait a minute as they're making something because they have to wait for something to settle or wait for something to float, or they have to mix it continuously because it can't, it, it, it can't separate. There's gravity playing a role there, and they've never even thought about, well, what if I switch gravity off? And so that's what creates these amazing partnerships is People making tractors, people making, you know, growing, growing wheat, wheat in fields, people working in, in stem cell research, all asking themselves this question, what does gravity do and what I do? It, it comes back to basic physics and really understanding what's happening and experimental design. And that's where really there's a lot of work to do in terms of making sure that when you go to microgravity, you're actually, you're actually leveraging the microgravity environment. And so that's why it has to be multidisciplinary like this. We all have to work together to, in these great partnerships. So on that note, in the last six minutes, we wanted to open it up for questions because we've got leading experts here in the space environment and technology development. Uh, we're just going to hand the mic out for anybody who wants to ask a question. I think I can shout and ask you this question. <laughs> How much uh, can instrumentation on Earth mimic the microgravity effect? And what are what's the shortcomings of just using this cheap methodology compared to the space expensive company? Please. Can I take, oh, can I, can I take that? All, all yeah, I know, I know. Go. So we, we have this big meeting coming up in a couple of weeks called the American Society of Gravitational Science Research, I think it is, it's ASGSR. And this is a running debate because a lot of people, because access is a bit limited to space right now, and they want to do work that simulates microgravity. And I think that's the key here, is simulating microgravity. In some instances, if you're looking at things that maybe aren't biological systems, maybe. I mean, it could help you directionally. In a simulated microgravity, so rotating cells basically just puts force vectors on those cells that are not like being in microgravity. In microgravity, you're kind of removing that force. So all of the rotating wall vessel bioreactors, clinotrons, random positioning machines, all the things that we have, they're helpful if you can't go to space, but they're not necessarily directly removing gravity from the equation. So Ron, I'm sure you have plenty of gravitas when you ask your question. Um, you know, as we set our sights on Mars, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we'll have is, you know, the exposure and cognitive decline, things of that nature. So what, what sorts of things are going on now? What experiments are going on now 
uh, as well as analysis of, of uh, folks that are in the space station for a long period of time that can give us insights into things that might be able to form a lot, not just shield them at some level, which I understand is not totally possible, right? People with water, etc. But um, you know, what what can we do, or what science can the community be doing that would really help inform the sorts of things that would be needed to keep our astronauts safe over such a prolonged period of time? Yeah. So I, I'm going to let Peggy respond to some of this when she's speaking to you as well. But, you know, the idea of we already have models for Parkinson's and MS, right? But they could be used as countermeasure models for cognitive decline, yeah. right? Radiation. Obviously, you actually here at UC San Diego have a proton facility right down the road. That's perfect mm-hmm. because most of the you know, galactic cosmic radiation is proton-based. So, and honestly, in low Earth orbit, you're only seeing that when you're at the poles. So outside of that, if we want to go further, we need to look at different ways to look at that radiation effect. The work that CAT's doing right now, even to look at crew samples and try to understand, you know, is there a difference in a short mission versus a long mission, right? Are there transient effects? And do... And so there is, there's a wealth of information on human health that, yes, relates to astronauts and long-duration missions and future space travelers, but has benefit to life on Earth as well. So I would encourage you to think both of those aspects, right? Aside from the matterpoetic system, it's basically the brain that's the main issue. But I'm talking about So... Fluid shifts in your body when you go to microgravity. So you have pressure on the optic nerve. You have cognitive effects. You have cardiovascular function that looks different, muscle wasting, bone loss. I'm sure Peggy can tell you what it feels like to be in space. And, you know, it's we talked about it at lunch. Sometimes it's not always that easy when you first get there. So for everybody who's a scientist, astronaut, who is dying to go, just know that you know, when you hear someone say thank you to an astronaut for their service, you really should say thank you to astronauts for their service. Because I just wanted it, to, I'm sorry, I didn't want to go interrupt. Ahead. Yeah. No, I just wanted to make a quick point about that. Uh, we're all created differently. Mm-hmm. And so this has been the very interesting eye-opener that you can't predict, right, Emma? Who is aging faster and who isn't? I thought I could. Apparently, I can't. Uh, but we can measure these things, and we can measure our individual risk for shortening our telomeres, for developing pre-malignant mutations, for getting immune dysfunction, for getting cognitive de- decline by using these models like Allison Motry set up, uh, Jean Lawrence working on. Uh, we've got Clive working on this and also Arun and our lab working on hematopoietic stem cells, liver progenitors with Jessica working on everybody's system. Uh, these are the things we can actually predict at an individual level. Um, so I keep pointing out Peter and Catherine and Karen and the whole um, team here from Epic because they're, if you look at the website, it says hyperspace. So somebody's uh, recording. <laughs> No, it's a, quite an echo. Anyway, we can uh, use this as a template for understanding human health, well, where we can predict our longevity based on developing these predictive tools for astronauts, uh, but actually apply it to all of us and have a real precision medicine platform. And, and I just would add one really quick, because someday our dream, and I know Lisa from 
the biological physical sciences division at NASA, who's going to be in the fireside chat next. Someday we, we want to make those models out of astronaut cells, right? And fly the actual astronaut cells before the mission. Look at their health profiles. Maybe develop countermeasures in advance, right? So all these models that we're developing that have benefit in so many different ways, that's why it's just fantastic to be engaged with a community like this because we can, at all levels, address a lot of things that will help us from a space. And we talk a lot about the International Space Station. We have great access today. But it's not going to be long before we're also talking about missions to the moon on a very uh, uh, regular basis and long-term presence on the moon and all the impacts of the different environment of partial gravity, of radiation, and of much longer duration missions as well. And so it'll create a whole new platform for cellular models. Everything we're talking about on ISS, we're going to want to do also on the way to the moon, around the moon, on the moon, and then on to Mars after that. So, Mark, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of these um, these methods, especially flying astronaut on a chip, is um, some of the work that was um, started to be pioneered by the NIH collaboration with um, with the ISS National Lab, um, really looking to identify those those personalized potential um, ways to care for our astronauts. I think that we want to always look for these these mitigation strategies when we're looking at that. And I do think that the important thing is, is to see how we can also leverage that to translate it to how does this apply to us um, finding interventions for terrestrial disorders. Um, you know, the truth is, while we'll, we'll be going to Mars and the moon, the population that's going to be doing those things is, is very small. Um, so as much as we can maximize the data that we're learning from these um, experiments when we're, we're really looking, it's, just, it's, a, it's, it's an awesome um, study um, and, and, and marrying it with all of the, the data that we have in population-wide studies is, could be really interesting if we can take this discrete population where the humans are actually flying as well as maybe their stem cells that we've differentiated into different organ types. And then we can really use that as a control um, to look at population studies here on Earth. And Mike, we'll give you the last word. Uh, we'll just be quick. So I wanted to ask a question, if that's fair. Is Mark Watney here? <laughs> or a show of hands, who wants to go to Mars? <laughs> oh, Couple folks. Okay. People. So the, the, <laughs> the risks are real. Um, I would, we would be remiss by not mentioning the NASA Human Research Program. So they are mm -hmm. specifically focused on astronaut health and performance. Uh, first, the moon, that's where we're going to be next, and then going to Mars. So they, they approach their science portfolio based on risk. Radiation is going to be risk number one. So there is a lot that this community has to contribute to that study. You've heard here the advances made in the use of tissue chips, the, the uh, validation of organoid-based models. Those all feed into that system, and it's a real feedback loop. So uh, NASA Biological and Physical Sciences has partnered with other U.S. government agencies to extend the lifetime of microphysiological systems. That benefits not only exploration systems and NASA's goals because you could send those chips to the moon and leave them there for months at a time rather than just 30 days or so like we get on station. Uh, and that's going to lead translate directly back to benefits here on Earth because there are certain conditions, cellular senescence and other things that we need longer duration exposure studies in those microphysiological systems or organoid-based models to do. So it's a really nice feedback loop now where 
uh, the fundamental questions are feeding into NASA's exploration goals, and then those exploration goals are translating into additional funding and new opportunities to understand how we can take advantage of those to understand what are the risks to humans as we move farther and farther from Earth. So that's a perfect segue, Mike. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd like to thank the panel. Um, please ask him many questions when we go out for our orbital cocktails at the end of all this. Thank you.